0: This is Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans, episode... We're not quite sure. This is a special, I guess? This is Blank Tapes, episode one. Um, no, this isn't some special audio drama like the black tapes or anything like that. This is kind of... Well, okay, I haven't heard or seen Dave... Well, in a couple of months, uh... Because you know, and I, I normally see Dave here and there throughout, because he works kind of nearer by me, and uh, yeah, yeah. Normally he'll uh, throw an envelope full of tapes into my front yard that I'll find a day or two later, or he'll leave them on my front porch, or I'll lean them up against the studio door, and I'll go, "Hey, Dave, can I get another copy?" Or they'll get mailed, or I'll have to drive out to Oleander. I hate driving out to Oleander. It's so long and I don't like that town. <laughs> it's creepy. And uh, what else? What else? What else? Um, so I haven't heard from Dave, but I keep getting bundles of the same tapes over and over again and then I realized, oh, it's not the same tapes there. Okay. So um, this is a bunch of tapes and everything all together. Not just me... Assembling audio to Dave and the Computer's instructions. No, no, no. This is Full Stories, Stuff That's Been Left Out, Part 1. Because we have a full episode still that I'm waiting for a handful of tapes to show up. I don't know if they're lost in the mail or what, but eventually... I don't know. I I think we'll see Episode 4 before we see Episode 8. Or maybe we'll see episode eight before we see episode four. I don't know, so yep, here is a bunch of stuff, and uh yeah there's 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 a couple audio channels missing in this, so we only hear what Dave's talking about. There isn't any um hmm uh it's just it's 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 just his head mic, not his body mic, so when he's exploring the underground. But he does have his footies on, so he don't have to listen to the loud footsteps. So, yeah. Here we go with episode 7-slash-8-slash-6. Okay. All right. Here we go.
1: So, how can you tell if somebody's a true comic book fan? One way is just say the words, Kite Man. A true comic book fan is going to respond to Kite Man with, hell yes. A few of you out there already know what I'm talking about, but we're going to explain today how the lowest of D-level supervillains with the lamest of gadgets not only stole Poison Ivy's heart, but kind of captured the entire the imagination of comic book readers all around the world. A lot of people were introduced to Kite Man by the uh, just brilliant animated Harley Quinn show. And he has become the fiancé of Poison Ivy. Now, everybody watching the show knows that Eventually, Poison Ivy and Harley Quinn are going to get together in some way. And there's a lot of teases up to that. And we know that this just can't last. But it's fun to watch. So, those of you who are not familiar with DC Comics' lovable loser of crime, he is a thief who flies around in this giant hang glider like kite in the words of poison ivy i think it's adorable that you think that kites is a superpower so like the majority of batman villains he's a human being he does not have power or access to a magical amulet he is just a guy a guy named Charlie Brown, but we'll talk more about that in a bit. So, Kite Man was created in 1960 by, of all people, Bill Finger. Now, Bill Finger basically, well, Bob Kane gets credit of creating Batman. And the reason why we think Bob Kane created Batman is DC put his name on the comic book cover Batman as created by Bob Kane and Bob Kane came up with the name kind of came up with the idea but Bill finger made Batman Batman he decided to go with the dark colors instead of almost this red and green almost Bob Kane had an almost Aquaman like costume he was gonna be a blonde with no mask you know he's just gonna have his face out there like uh, Superman did uh, Bellfinger created uh, the um, the cowl, the the cape. Uh, he created. He came up with the idea that that Bruce Wayne would be rich to be able to support uh, what he did, and that he was driven to fight crime because you know witnessing the death of his parents. So a lot of Batman was created by Bill Finger. So Bill was this very, very creative person. But by 1960s, he was kind of writing in some of the villains. So Batman has some very strange villains, uh, from, you know, the Calendar Man to uh, Polka Dot Man. um some really weird ones. And one of Finger's creation was, you know, Kite Man. So he shows up in the original volume of Batman, issue 133, where he basically has a kite. He has a gang and a kite. uh, And he uh, is stealing a ruby. And he's defeated when Batman takes one of his dragon kites, this huge giant dragon kite, uh, and chases him down and captures him. So his first appearance was in August 1960. And he doesn't show up. He gets, of course, arrested and he goes to jail. But he doesn't show up for another 19 years. In 1979, uh, Len Wein uses him as a uh, villain in a, a payroll heist. But he, he doesn't use a kite in this. He, he uses fireworks and um, and a hang glider. Now he doesn't show up for another seven years. And this time he doesn't fight Batman, but he goes up against Hawkman, Hawk Girl, and Zartana. And we get, he's trying to get this MacGuffin, um, the Golden Eagle. I'm not even sure they even say what it is, but we get a little bit of his backstory and that's when we reveal that the guy's name is Chuck Brown. Now, this issue was actually written by uh, Tony Isabella. And Tony was in on the joke the whole time. So the, the name of the, uh, the story is the benefit For the Benefit of Mr. Kite, which is a, a Beatles song off of their uh, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Band uh, album. And um, the name Charlie Brown is a tribute because Tony Isabella loved Peanuts. And in the end of this issue, Kite Man crashes into a tree and says, Rats, just like Charlie Brown says in Peanuts when his kite gets eaten by a tree, you know, the kite-eating tree. So for a while, Kite Man just sort of, he drifts into obscurity, but he shows up in any type of where they needed a lot of villains. So if there's a group of villains in the background at a bar or something like that, you know, they throw Kite Man in the background. And so there's even a a country of villains called Zandia that goes and competes in the Olympic, and Kite Man is on their Olympic team. Apparently they're kite-flying team, so we're not really sure if, you know, in the Bat Universe or the DCU, if you know, kite flying is an Olympic sport, but apparently it is. Again, it's more like a, a hang glider kite, so maybe kite hang gliding is a sport in the DCU. So, in the 2000s, um, DC goes through a lot of just universe-altering, changing retcons, and And that's really what they are. I mean, there may be an excuse that Flash ran so fast or something, but they're retcons. And, you know, there's uh, the 52, DC 52, the new 52, Rebirth, Midlife Crisis. I am not going to even pretend to say I understand that part of DC. I, I really don't. It gets really confusing to me when they make all these changes. And what's really a short period of time for something that had a pretty long continuity? But in all these changes, there's a couple of stories about what happened to Kite Man. Now, one of them comes from the most unreliable of narrators, the Joker, in which he says that uh, Deathstroke the Terminator you know, kicked him off a, a roof of a high-rise without his kite. And then there's another version where he is literally, Kite Man is literally cannibalized by Bruno Mannheim. So Kite Man at this part of the retconning of DC gets no love and or respect. That is until Tom King. Now, Tom King took over Batman after Rebirth. And in 2016, in Batman 6, he reintroduces... So, he's over this big, giant, tall mansion in, in Gotham City. He's on a hang glider. And he flies it right into this window. And then the hang glider disappears. He lands in the room... Runs across to the next window, grabs this rich woman's pearls, jumps out of the other window, pops open his hang glider, and flies away. Now, that's when Tom King added the favorite, uh, the famous catchphrase. Uh, Basically, there wasn't enough dialogue, so DC said, Well, you have to put something there, and Tom didn't know what to say. So, flying away. And this was an introduction, the character hadn't been seen in, in decades. Uh, he had him say, Kite Man, hell yeah. Uh, then again, you know, he lands, and then he's immediately beaten up by Gotham Girl, uh, probably the least known of the Bat family. And that's sort of Tom's sort of MO for a while using Kite Man is when he needs something to sort of make it a little bit less tense, add a little levity, he has Kite Man fly in and get beaten up. Uh, Kite Man is going to have his bottom handed to him more than any sort of comic book character more than anyone next, except for possibly, you know, Krillin and uh, Dragon Ball Z. He he becomes a joke, but he becomes a winking joke. You know, uh, King gets that this is absurd and that the guy keeps trying. He becomes this lovable loser of crime. That is until... King writes the arc, The War of Jokes and Riddles. Uh, The War of Jokes and Riddles is basically bookended. It takes place years and years in the past uh, where it's basically pillow talk between Batman and Catwoman. And they are in bed and Batman has to reveal this... Or Bruce really has to reveal to, to Selena something that he really regretted. And so it's supposed to be the second year that he is Batman and he's telling her this story in which Riddler and Joker decide that they're gonna have an all-out war on who is the funniest, you know, who has this claim to to humor-related crimes. And in this, he tells them about what happened to poor Chucky Brown. So he was basically a loser who had one talent. And it was that he understood innately aerodynamics. And so he's this loser. He's divorced. He's um, divorced no one really likes him but his kid and he gets caught up in, in the Gotham criminal circles because he's trying to make Joker's Joker mobile faster by by adjusting you know drag and the aerodynamics and he gets caught in this up in this terrible war and he's used by Batman he is used by Joker and he is used by Riddler. And like I said, he the only thing, the only positive thing in, in Charles Brown Sr.'s life is, is his seven-year-old son. And his son is killed by the Riddler, who poisons his kite string. Now, there's a, a trope out there called the Batman Gambit. And that's where you basically know the psych- psychological makeup of your enemies so well that you, you, you go them into a, a situation and you know how they're going to react because you know them so well. The cl- it's named after Batman. And the classic example is when he gets caught and almost killed by Harley Quinn. He tricks her by saying, well, aren't you going to show this to the Joker? He won't believe you. And then when sh- Joker shows up, he beats Harley Quinn up and lets Batman go. Because Batman knew Joker won't let anyone else but him capture and kill uh, Batman. And so Batman escapes. So that's the Batman gambit. And in this, Riddler out-Batman gambits everybody, including Batman. Batman is driven to the point where he tries to kill Riddler. And Riddler's life is saved. By the Joker, because if anybody's going to break Batman and make him break his moral code, it's going to be Joker. It's not going to be Riddler. But in this, so Riddler kills, you know, Kite Man's son, not because he betrayed him, but he he set this in motion because he just knew that Charlie Brown was the weak link that was going to be used by Batman and by Joker, and that he was going to set this in motion and punish him before he did anything. He just knew Charlie Brown so well. He just knew. But, in a way, though, and I'm not completely spoiling this, but at the end... Riddler is sort of hoisted by, you know, by Kite King's batard. Um, he fails and he loses this mob war because of the actions of Kite King, and it's the death of this innocent seven-year-old boy that drives Batman to the point where he is almost willing to break. His his no killing rule. This story really humanizes Kite Man. In fact, it's very hard for me to call him Kite Man. He's such a human character. I have to call him, you know, Chuck Brown or Charles Brown, because it's more of about the human being than this sort of macho a uh, guy flying a like kite keeps getting beaten up. In fact, we even learned that the reason why he's, you know, says Kite Man, hell yeah, is because, you know, that was sort of, you know, his son, you don't want to go fly kites, you know, hell yeah. And you and go, no, you don't swear. And, you know, it's, it's sort of a tribute to his son. Uh, so it humanizes not only Kite Man, it, it humanized, you know, his motto. And it's important, too, to the ongoing Batman mythos because after Bruce confesses this uh, to Selina, he asks her to marry him. That's his last secret, the last thing he's keeping from her. Now, we all know that isn't going to last, but but it's, it's an important setup to a major DC event. And honestly... It's one of my favorite Batman stories. Um, Is it, you know, Batman Returns? No. But I would say it's maybe top three right under, you know, uh, Batman White Knight. It's a good, interesting story. Which I probably ruined for you if you haven't read by telling you everything. But it's still, it's worth checking out. So, the War of Jokes and Riddles and the Harley Quinn animated show has put Kite Man back on the map. And we see, you know, Poison Ivy kind of warming up to him. And then, you know, even Harley Quinn is like, you know, this is is a good guy in his heart. Who's willing to risk his life and and loves my best friend, and even Harley Quinn warms up to him, but so does the audience, and you know he's willing to to risk his life to 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 get the the diamond that um, he thought that uh, that Poison Ivy wanted for you know for their engagement. He also is this human, and he's human because he's fallible. You know, he's very, he is that lovable loser. And when you compare him to even some of the more sympathetic criminals in the Harley Quinn animated series, like uh, uh, Alan Tudyk's uh, Clayface, there's something different about him. He's different from all the other criminals in Gotham and New New Gotham, or whatever they're calling it, in that he's sincere. He's honest. I mean, honest in the fact that he's who he is. He likes to eat hot dogs. He likes to fly kites. Um, He likes dirty jokes. Um, And he is a sort of the lovable loser. Something's going to happen. He's going to die, or something's going to happen, because... You know, he can't end up with poison Ivy. We all get that but but something's gonna happen and you know until then you know I say enjoy him his screen time because there there really is this kind of almost innocent cute chemistry between him and poison Ivy. So um, kite man? yeah I say hell yes.
0: Anyone growing up in the Pacific Northwest knew that Portland General Electric had a character named Kite Man that warned you about the dangers of flying your kites around power lines um just known for the uh, kids people who grew up in the Pacific Northwest in the 70s and 80s uh Know that it has a line that everyone knows called Where a little girl says I like frogs out of nowhere Anyway, Kite Man Uh, Here is full tales From episode 7 All the beginning, ending Parts all intact So we got all those tapes Finally sorted out And yeah So uh, let's have a listen To some stuff about uh, that radio and a guitar, I think it is. I don't know. Maybe that's episode six. See, I'm starting to realize why we need to do these episodes with all the stories put together. Okay, here we go. Uh,
1: so one of the things that I find sort of the most interesting is that in this underground base that I, I live above, the Illuminati, they basically set up rooms for, like, very Special items, and it's it's it's. I it must be like a museum. That's the only thing I could think of is that they they took people in as tours because these are truly museum level displays. So I'm gonna go ahead and share one with you today. So uh, this room is we're about 13 or so floors under the ground, and uh, okay, here's the door. Let me go ahead and open it up. Okay, and. So I'm entering the room, and it looks like maybe a 1930s honky-tonk. Now, uh, a while back, I talked about a, a radio that was haunted or, or had the psychic projections of the family that died listening to it. Uh, this story also took place in 1938. Uh, 1938 was a, an interesting year. H.P. Uh, Lovecraft died... We got both Superman and Batman, L. Ron Hubbard had a a near death experience that uh, put him on writing a a story called Excalibur, Uh, of course it was Orson Welles' War of the Worlds, Uh, strange glowing lights that fell out of the sky over Sweden, Uh, some people say even destroyed homes. So a lot of weird things happened. In 1938, including this story. And, and again, you're not going to find this story anywhere else because the Illuminati did everything they could to keep this one under wraps. But I'm going to tell you the uh, story of Diana Morningstar's guitar. Now, what's important to remember is uh, Diana Morningstar, like most people in this story, was born in 1911. So Diana and many of the people in this story uh, are 27 years old. And this is going to be an important factor later on uh, as we explore this story. But uh, let's explore this room for a bit. So there is an old jukebox there and above it we see some black and white photographs of famous African American blues singers here's one of uh, Sonny Boy Wilson uh, Lead Belly Robert Johnson now here's one though uh, you probably wouldn't recognize I didn't hear know of him before this uh, Jacko Hill now Jacko he he was a a blues man uh, from, from Mississippi of some talent but he didn't get the fame that the others got probably because of his death but He's going to be key to this story. And then there's other pictures, color pictures, from much past 1938 uh, of famous musicians. Uh, Kurt Cobain, uh, Amy Winehouse, Blama Cass, the Jimmies, Hendrix, and Morrison. Then there's a a bar up here next to uh, the wall. It's got a a Confederate flag and a mirror behind it and on the bar a bunch of uh, empty bottles that you would have seen whiskey bottles or whatever different types of alcohol you would have seen in 1938 uh, there's a, a jukebox here I think that they just put that one there for you know effect because it, it looks to me like a 50's jukebox but you know even the Illuminati doesn't get everything right all the time but they're, they're in the scene and then here, on this pillar, is a guitar. It's an acoustic guitar. It's made out of wood. Uh, strings appear to be metal. Um, looks handmade. Not bad, but it looks handmade. And then burned into the wood are the initials DM, and below it, the number 27. Then on this pillar, we have... In a leather folder the Illuminati case notes on on the history of Diana Moonstar's guitar. Now uh, we open it up and you know there's this type file but the first thing you see is this picture of this striking woman Uh, looks like she has Native American features Uh, she's wearing a 1930s you know man suit with a fedora In fact, if anything, the fact that she's wearing masculine clothing makes her look more feminine to me. And she has really sad eyes. And on the corner is scratched in the name of the artist, uh, Jim Morrison, and it's dated July 3rd, 1971. Now, those of you that are fans of The Doors, Jim Morrison, the, the lead singer, that's the day he died. So what does this picture have to do with this guitar? Let me tell you. Well, we've got to go back to Philadelphia, Mississippi, 1938. And Jack O'Hill, like I said, was a, an African-American um, blues singer. You know, on Depression Depression-era America. He, um, Got by, you know, uh, playing guitar. You know, uh, picked a little cotton. You know, worked, you know, construction. Anything he could to get by and living. But you know, his main thing was um, was was blues, and he loved the guitar. He loved blues. In fact, he actually quit cotton picking because it damaged his fingers. He didn't want to hurt his fingers, so he couldn't play play music, and. He made a living off of it, you know, as much as you know, any you know, person made in the South during the Depression. It, it, it was a tough time, but he loved the blues. He loved the music. He loved the guitar. Only thing in the world he loved more than, than making music was Diana Moonstar. Now Diana was twenty seven, and so just so happened uh, was Jacko. Now, she was from Philadelphia, Mississippi, and she was of mixed ancestry. Uh, She was Caucasian, but she was also half um, Choctaw Indian, uh, Native American. And she fell madly in love with this blues singer. And, And the feeling was mutual, you know you know, the the stereotype, you know, of, of uh, uh, blues singers, you know, have a lot of women uh, or, you know, Robert Johnson, you know, dated a lot of married women but no, Jaco was very faithful, as near as we can tell, as all the records tell uh, to Diana and she was faithful to him. Now, I didn't find a record or the Illuminati didn't find a record when they researched this that they had been married, but you know that really didn't mean much. Uh, preacher probably would have cost money, and they were both kind of bohemian spirits that, not really religious. So there was no real reason for them to get, to get married. But it didn't mean that they weren't deeply, deeply, passionately in love. And Diana Moonstar was a pretty woman, uh, and you know, so was so was Jacko. He was a handsome man, but. Diana's looks got her the attention of one of the you know county deputy sheriffs, and she rejected him. She wasn't madly in love with Jacko, and everyone knew it, so the sheriff and his buddies are going to take this out on jacko, and what they did is and this is this is terrible this is a terrible thing that happened, but we are not going to deny. That this happened in the South in the 30s. They basically lynched him as a black man who was in a relationship with a white woman. Now, here's the irony. Well, I mean, I don't know. I, I hate using the irony. But here's one of the, the terrible things is now that community, they didn't really consider Diana Moonstar white. She was half Native American. You know they didn't consider her white but they used it as an excuse to lynch her lover Jacob and they did they hung him and killed him they hung him without a trial because deputy sheriff the woman he loved so no one saw Diana Moonstar during the daytime for the next year now people would say they saw her at night they said that Of course, they said they saw her in the graveyard, and some of them said that, you know, she was there talking to the ghost of her dead lover, but others said no, that it wasn't Jacko that she was talking to. Rather, it was a tall man with horns coming out of his head and uh, smelled of uh, brimstone. There actually began around uh, Philadelphia, Mississippi, a rumor that Jacko never died. This was untrue, of course, but the reason why, besides seeing Diana in the graveyard, people would claim that they heard this eerie, mysterious guitar playing that was reminiscent of, of the way uh, Jacko played. Well, a year to the day that, that Jacko was murdered, and, and there's no other way to say it. He was lynched, he was murdered. He was killed literally because of the color of his skin and because a man in power wanted the woman who loved him. But so the deputy sheriff and his three buddies who were, who helped him lynch Jacko, they were at this um, honky tonk, this cheap dive bar uh, called Greasy's. And they were, were celebrating the, the deputy sheriff's 27th birthday. Uh, and it was a year exactly to the day that, that Jacko was murdered. Now, his friends had helped him. There were three of them. They were all actually gone to the same high school. Um, they were all a little older, but none of them were a full year older than the deputy sheriff. And the door just flies open in the, this honky tonk bar. just like it's blown open by the wind Diana Moonstar and she is wearing the clothes of her dead lover in fact some people say it's the clothes he was buried in Uh, you know white shirt thin tie uh, just suit that's baggy big for her and a fedora and she just walks right up into the stage now as part being Native American and being a woman, it was if not illegal, it was commonplace for the deputy sheriff to run her right out. But, you know, he just laughed at her and then she pulls out, she has this guitar with uh, her initials and the number 27 and she starts playing this the survivor's described as this incredible eerie Song, They couldn't tell you what the words were. None of them remembered. In fact, almost everyone there who was not 27 years old, and it was just the deputy sheriff and his three friends that were 27, everyone who was younger or older, they they remember her walking in, they remember her playing, and then they just ran out screaming, this incredible sense of fear and dread as the sheriff and his buddies, or the deputy sheriff and his buddies, just laid convulsing on the floor. And then she finished her song, and she walked off. And the bartender had survived. He said she walked into this bank of fog and just disappeared. Um, They did find, you know, the deputy sheriff and his three friends. They were dead. And by the looks on their face, they had very painful deaths. But the coroner could not find out. They even took it to Jackson. They took the bodies to Jackson to have another coroner, a more experienced coroner. Look at the bodies, and he could not find a reason that they had died. Um, There was no poison. uh, There was no damaged organs. There wasn't a heart attack. There were no wounds. His words, they say, you know, these people should be alive. It is like their souls were ripped out of their bodies. Um, and then, then Diana Moonstar was not seen again in Philadelphia, Mississippi. That day she just walked into the fog bank and disappeared. But she has been seen other places. You may have heard the legend of the 27 Club—that a large percentage of musicians, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Kurt Cobain, have died when they turned when they were 27 years old. A higher percentage than just what statistically should have happened. And some say, well, that's you know that's because they get rich around 25, 26, and You know, buy fancy cars, fast cars, drugs. And there might be something to it. But there are reports. Reports that the Illuminati went very carefully trying to crush. That the day before, the days before, that day that these famous people died... There's a report of a beautiful, dark-skinned woman wearing a dark men's suit and a fedora. The Illuminati agent who investigated this sincerely believed that, as part of the pack, not only did Diana give up her own soul, but she became a kind of grim reaper, a repossessor of souls for the devil, if you wish. And that it was her job to take musicians famous who become famous, and maybe some that were not as famous, we just didn't hear about it, to take their souls and end and their lives when they turn sometime in their 27th year. Is this a true story? I don't know. The Illuminati thought it was a true enough story that they did their best to try to prevent everybody else from in the world to learn about it but i don't know and i look at this guitar and it is just something that makes me want to play it but i am so glad that i don't know how to play because if i did i'm afraid what i would summon up
0: you know what that that segment makes a lot more sense with the beginning, middle, and end all in the right place. And in the right order. So, yeah. I'm not sure if uh, this is Melvin or Arvid or one of the nerds in the base who uh, mislabeled things or what. But, I don't know. Anyways, these are big clunky tapes, as I've said before. Let's... I mean, they're, they're about the size of... Uh, they're big chunky things. They're like mini discs meet uh, old old cassette tapes. It's it's pretty crazy stuff. I I don't even think DARPA had stuff like that back then. But you know, hey, Illuminati. Um, and I don't even know if it's like the Bavarian Illuminati. I'm I'm not quite sure which Illuminati it is. Uh, it it, it may be some sort of uh, public. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I was gonna say publicly sourced an Illuminati, but that, that doesn't make any sense. Do you know what does make sense? This next story with its beginning, middle, and end in the right spot, here we go.
1: So when I discovered this underground Illuminati base, I immediately started grabbing all these files that I could about you know, mysteries and urban legends and Fordian events uh, to find out what really happened. And strangely enough, one of the cases I was interested in there's no mention here. So it's a big a mystery now as it was when I first heard this a couple years ago. And this is the mysterious disappearance of Jim Sullivan. Happened back in 1975. And if you look carefully enough you can find information about it on the internet. In fact, I would recommend to all of you maybe to google this case and there's a lot more speculation than evidence uh but nothing here so i'm going to kind of tell you the story of the uh in a lot of ways uh jim solomon's uh case is a pretty much standard in 1970s standard by the books, missing person case, if there is such a thing. You know, except for, you know, his minor success as a musician and uh, a recent resurgent and a release uh, of his music. But the case took a turn for the weird uh, back in March uh, 2017, where uh, an amateur sleuth who was trying to to, to find out more, find out what happened to Jim, I wanted to update the records in NOMUS. Uh, now, NOMUS is a database which keeps track of details on lying missing person cases so that people around the country can be familiar with it, maybe add clues. But when it was submitted uh, to NOMUS, Uh, They came back with the conclusion that there was no person named Jim Sullivan who had ever had a missing persons case filed uh, in the state of New Mexico. And this kind of sparked an online investigation or a possibility that maybe this whole thing was made up for publicity in the re-release of Jim's album UFO. And a lot of serious investigators or, you know, part-time investigators who are really interested in trying to find details of this case kind of dropped it at that time. Now, I have a problem with this being an entirely made-up publicity stunt. And that is that we know Jim Sullivan was a real person. We have his music we can i've seen interviews with his wife you know people who knew him people who had interviews of people who had been at his gigs you know employment records newspaper articles you know at the time that he was that he disappeared and and so just i mean if he didn't disappear in new mexico what happened to him you know other than you know accepting the the sort of Ridiculous possibility that Jim Sullivan was a made-up person who never existed, and till they decided to release a, a record and claimed it, you know, was from someone back in the 70s, which they just—I I can't believe it. There's just too much evidence that he at least a lot was alive, and that he disappeared somewhere between, you know, Los Angeles and Nashville. So, my alternative theory is why there was no apparent records of, of his disappearance or no missing persons report is clerical error. I mean, a lot of records in the 1970s were paper written down. A lot of it was later transferred to computers. And, and I'm sure there's a lot of things disappeared i'm sure there are a lot of records that just didn't go from you know paper to digital and, and so the idea that a remote new mexico sheriff's department paperwork got lost after 45 years or somewhere in a 45 year period to me that's a lot more logical than this whole concept that that Jim Sullivan never disappeared, or that he never existed. But to best of my knowledge, no one's ever resolved this issue or come with a a definitive issue. This is why we do not have a missing persons report for Jim Sullivan. So what happened to him? Did he leave the planet on a UFO? I'm a little skeptical of that too. Um, but what I do know is that a man who, who wanted so much to be famous for his music and who came so close is now basically remembered because he disappeared. Not for the reason he wanted to be, which was the music he loved so much.
0: Hey, is this an episode you love so much? Let people know. Tell people about it. Be like, hey, check out Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans. I know it's a goofy name, but it's a fun podcast. Dave talks about cool stuff. Anyway, so, yeah, that's it for now, you guys. Uh, these, This is this, this, this envelope of tapes. Next time, I'll have another envelope of tapes, and maybe it'll be a full episode of episode four. I don't know. I'm, I'm still waiting for some tapes on that. I I got a few in at one point in time, and I thought I was going to release it. And Dave's like, hey, did you get all those episode four tapes?" And I'm like, no, Dave, I'm still waiting for one. And he's like, oh, I just sent some. And then I found it. It was chewed on by a goat. <sighs> Goats. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, sometime soon, there should be a new episode with all of its parts together at last. All right. Kite man. dave's underground goat shenanigans is recorded in the secret illuminati base in Orleander, oregon and edited and produced in portland oregon in badger's drift studios in glorious portland oregon if you would like to help the show or comments or anything like that go to the internet and complain the internet is where you complain Just start typing and being like, I don't like your podcast. You talk about this too much, and you don't talk about this enough at all. And what about my political agenda? How come you've offended me? And hit send, and it'll go to the right people. For people who want to actually talk to me and Dave about specific things, you can go to Dave's Corner of the Universe. Just Google that. You'll find it. Or just Google or search or whatever you want to do pgttcm.com. That's my production company. And there's contacts there. And, uh, hey, if you're talking about spell books and stuff like that, I don't know what you're talking about. People talk about stuff and I don't know what they're talking about. If you want to know how much a Call of Cthulhu third edition book that you have, we don't know. We, you know, we should probably talk to someone else. If you have questions about raising goats... Hmm. Role-playing games, comic books, literature, gothic literature, horror, uh, spookily dookly things, weird mysteries, and things like that. Dave and I can help you out. Heck, maybe me and Dave should open up some sort of paranormal investigation where Dave's like, I think it's ghosts. And I'll be like, it's all hogwash. Anyway. And before we leave, I'd like to say one last thing. Alexa, subscribe on Spotify to Black Clock Audio Tales. Alexa, play Fleetwood Mac Radio
1: on Spotify, full volume. Thank you and enjoy.